Why is there such a high expectation of perfection when we're the ones communicating in front of an audience? We want other people to validate us. We want other people to see us in a better light. And that is that pressure. We feel it whenever we present. And what I try to do a lot in my practice and in my work is to break that down. But when you're going up on stage, that's your one shot for those who do have a hard time with communication, what are some tips and tricks that you can give to motivate people to invest in becoming good communicators? The way I teach speaking. Hey, it's great to have you back for another episode of Opportunity Made, where we share practical lessons to break patterns, get unstuck, and find freedom in business and life. I am your host, Katherine Lewis. If you're new with us, in each episode, my incredible guests and I will bring you empowering insights and easy to understand takeaways you can use to transform your life. You'll learn effective ways to grow as a leader, clear your success blockers, and make new opportunities, giving you a life you love. This is Katherine Lewis, the host of Opportunity Made. Today, I have a special guest. I am really excited to talk about public speaking and communication with one of the top public speaking coaches, Brendan Kumarasamy. And so, Brendan, can you tell me why are people so afraid of public speaking? Absolutely, Katherine. Thanks for having me on the show. It's great to be here. Yeah, the, re- the reason I think most of us are scared of public speaking is it goes back to the education system whether you're born in the US or Canada or England or some other part of the world, public speaking always begins in the school, middle school, high school, college. And all of those presentations, Catherine, share three fundamental problems. Number one, they're all mandatory. We don't wake up in the morning and say, hey, Catherine, you want to get breakfast and present all day? Nobody says that. So that's problem number one. Problem number two, is all of the presentations are never something you get to present. You don't get to choose the topic. Mm -hmm. So it's never, what are you passionate about? But rather, hey, you have to talk about Shakespearean poetry and you don't really have a choice in the matter. And then number three, every Mm -hmm. single presentation is tied to a punishment. So if you don't do a great job, not only do you not get a pat on the back, you get a slap in the face and you lose grades. So if 100% of all of our presentations, Catherine, growing up are mandatory, you never get to pick the topic, and they're tied to a punishment, you grew up believing that communication is a chore and nobody wants to get better at doing the dishes. I love that response. But when we are talking amongst our peers, we're just hanging out and chatting with our friends, even as we're young and we're growing up in school. The nervousness that comes with public speaking doesn't exist in a casual conversation. So why all of a sudden does it show up when we are on the spot and we are having to perform in our communications? Absolutely, Catherine. So so there's two parts to that. One is just going back to that educational example. The the example I'm really referring to is that middle school presentation where you're a 14-year-old kid and you're presenting in front of a group of 30 students and everybody's attention is on you. And since as human beings, we are, our brain is wired for survival, not happiness, the best way to survive is to not get attention. 
Because if you have too much attention on you, you could be a target for something else. Maybe and back then it was probably like a tiger or something. But today it's it's the fear of rejection, the fear of judgment. So that's really the reason why we're scared. But then the the solution becomes, okay, how do we master any other skill in our life? Whether it's learning how to ride a bike, whether it's learning something advanced. And the answer is nothing to do with the fear, but rather the motivation. Mm -hmm. The reason we apply for the job, (coughs) excuse me, even if we're scared of it, is because we don't want to be broke. So that's why we do it. So I just applied the same rationale to speaking as well. Yeah, the motivation is key. I know when I'm speaking, if I'm thinking about other people and what they're thinking, so therefore my motive is to please them, then I get super nervous. But if I think about how can I serve and how can I provide valuable information, then the nerves will go away because now I'm thinking about serving others rather than gaining their approval and keeping the focus on what they think about me. So I love that you mentioned motive there. There is this expectation of perfection when you're speaking publicly. I think it's an expectation we put on ourselves as the communicators because when you're in the audience, you don't notice as many of the mistakes. It's like when someone's playing the piano in front of an audience and they miss a note or mess up the note. No one really knows unless they themselves have performed that song many times. So why is there such a high expectation of perfection when we're the ones communicating in front of an audience? For sure, Catherine. And and another analogy that I like to use, which is similar to yours, is if you're watching a dance routine and they make a mistake in the routine, you don't really know because you don't know the routine. So, But I think the reason why a lot of us strive for perfection is because we don't want to look bad in front of other people. right? A, A lot of human behavior is status. That's why a lot of us, for even if we can't afford one or we don't even like cars, why we buy the BMW car, why we get the Mercedes, why we want to buy the Louis Vuitton purse. It's not because we necessarily need these items intrinsically, though some people might be bag lovers or car lovers and they might just like the craft of it. But I'd argue most of those purchases are made out of status. Because if I buy that BMW, Catherine will look at me at a certain way that she wouldn't before, as an example, right? Mm-hmm. But that's that's the key. So it's the same thing with speaking, where if I'm if we're giving a presentation, we want other people to validate us. We want other people to see us in a better light. And that is that pressure. We feel it whenever we present. And what I try to do a lot in my practice and in my work is to break that down. And an analogy would be, let's say when you're riding the bike, let's say you're five years old or seven years old and you're learning to ride a bike. If I asked you or anyone listening to this podcast, hey, what instruction manual did you follow to go from a four-wheel bike to a two-wheeler? Most people would answer, well, I don't really follow a manual. I kind of just rode, fell down, and then I, I made it work. And we just don't apply that same kind of fun attitude towards riding a bike to public speaking because of the conditioning we've had in, in high school and middle school. I love that you bring fun to the conversation. That's something I've been thinking about more lately is how can we just see everything as play? But when you're going up on stage, that's your one shot. And so it feels a little bit risky to see it as an opportunity to play. But what are your thoughts on just taking it as an adventure? For sure, Catherine. You're asking a lot of great questions, by the way. I've done so many interviews, but I've never been asked any of these questions. You really make me think today. I love it. 
So for, for me, communication is like juggling 18 balls at the same time, right? So one of those balls is body language. One of them is storytelling. One of them is facial expressions. One of them is knowing how to have great conversation. But if you try to juggle all 18 at the same time, all of them fall to the floor. So for me, to make this fun, the question has never been, how do I make sure that the one opportunity I get to present in is an amazing one, but rather, out of those 18 balls, what are the three easiest ones? So one of those examples is the random word exercise, where you take any word, like headset or chair or home, and you create random presentations out of thin air. So one example could be you take the word flute, something I have no expertise in, and you give a 60-second presentation. But if you do this a few times a day, like for those of you listening, if you have children, if you have nieces, nephews, great to do it with them because they don't really question the exercise. They just do it. And if you do that a lot, you get a lot more comfortable in those one-shot opportunities. The second example I'll give, and I'll throw it back to you, is this very podcast. So when I started guesting on pods, this was like three, four years ago, I was so bad. Like I remember my first time I had a phone because I didn't know you're supposed to buy a headset. So I had a phone. I had no lighting. My phone died in the middle of the interview. It was a mess, but I wasn't putting the measuring stick that you were alluding to earlier of, oh my God, we need to be perfect because we do do that as human beings. It was more of, I get points for just doing it. And that's how we should see it. Keep the bar low, basically. I love that. So you created your own point system for yourself. That was not the one everybody is typically using. That's very well articulated. Absolutely. And in the context of, of random word, I might actually have to steal that one from you, but in the context of the random word exercise, what I tell clients or just people in general is we don't get points for doing the exercise well. We get points for doing the exercise a lot. And mm. there's not a lot of people who are willing to do what I described a hundred times in their life, not a day or a week, just five times a day for three weeks. And that's it. Most people are not willing to do that. Yeah, it's true. Consistency is so much more powerful than doing it perfectly, right? Absolutely. Done is better than perfect. I love that. Done is better than perfect. That is so good. So what are some things that you're learning from your clients? You're an expert in this topic, but is there anything they're teaching you? I mean, so much, Catherine. I mean, where to begin? I, th I think a lot of my my knowledge actually comes from clients because. I love the art of coaching. That's actually where I'm, I'm bred in this field. I don't really have a background in communication. I studied in accounting, actually. That's what my bachelor's mm -hmm. degree is in. So literally the opposite of, of speaking. But the reason I, I guess people call me an expert today is because of the practical experience I've had coaching people directly. So I would try, kind of like a mad scientist, I would try a strategy, like, like something that wasn't the random word exercise, and it wouldn't work. I go, ah, then I try the random word exercise and people get results. So I just kept trying a bunch of things. And, and today, I would say at least 80% of the new stuff I'm coming up with these days always comes from my advanced clients specifically, like the best clients who have been working with me for, let's say, years. So they already know everything that's in my YouTube video, but they want to keep working with me. So I have to keep coming up with new ideas and concepts to keep pushing them and, and in consequence, push my own field and my own knowledge base. One of, one of those examples, there's like probably 20, but I'll give you one in particular that I, that I was able to invent early in my career. 
is the concept of goal setting for your communication skills. So a lot of us have goals for our relationships. A lot of us have goals for our health, our life, our romantic life, etc. But we don't really have vision for our communication. So when I was coaching these these superstar advanced clients, I, that was my first time running that program. It was probably two years ago when I started that. And I didn't really know how to coach them. So I was like, okay, I'm, am I just going to do the random word exercise? And then I came up with communication goal setting as a frame to teach them so I could keep up with them and they can keep growing. It's funny that you say, so you could keep up with your clients. Oftentimes, we think that we have to be ahead of who we're serving. That's how we become the expert. But sometimes you're learning right alongside them. So I'm curious, did you determine that you were a public speaking expert before your clients or did they come to you and give you that identity? fascinating question. I never, you know, even today, Catherine, I don't really consider myself an expert at communication. You know, for me, the definition of, or the way to overcome imposter syndrome rather, because I started coaching C-level executives when I was like 21, 21, 22 years old. And I think the way I overcame it, that whole idea of imposter syndrome, is I just coach the person behind me. And what I mean by this, and there's a quote by Ali Gadet, which is, if you help one person, the world will give you permission to help everyone else. So when I got started, which was I was 19 when I started coaching comms, I just started with people I was comfortable with. I was coaching like 15-year-old girls and 16-year-old boys. Then I started coaching people my own age, let's say 20s, early 20s. And then I went straight to CEO. Why is that? Because a lot of my friends were starting tech companies out of college, like a lot of tech nerds. They start their own businesses in technology. And they needed help with speaking, and they couldn't afford a coach, and I was broke back then too. So I just helped them. And that's what gave me C-level experience. C-level, for those of you, just means like people who are at the highest level of a company, like CFO, like chief financial officer or something. And then I just said, okay, well, if I can coach a 22-year-old CEO, I could probably coach like a manager who's 32 who's like 10 years older. And then I just over time built up that expertise. And then people just started calling me an expert. But I think the the real lesson is, is to really be focused on the person you're serving. And then over time, you get better. And like a funny side note, I remember like the first 50 interviews I did or something. I just said yes to anybody, even if they had no listeners. So I would go on like a weed show, I would go on a sports show, and I had no idea what they were going to ask me or why they even wanted me on the show. But I just saw it as a learning experience to keep honing my craft to become the person I am today. Some people would be really nervous with that experience because it almost seems like you're going off brand or what are they going to ask you? And yet you are just taking it casually as another opportunity for practice. How did you get to that mindset where, again, coming full circle, you're just playing, you're just practicing rather than leaving this whole legacy of shows behind you that maybe didn't match your brand or weren't on point with the image you wanted to create? You're, you're bringing up a fascinating idea here, Catherine, which is you could look at any story, and, I, and I'm speaking broadly into this, and then we'll go into specifics. You could look into any story and interpret whatever you want from it. But what's nice is you get to choose the meaning. Let me give an example of my personal life. So I have three big challenges that, that the, mo- the normal person would look at me and say, why would you choose communication coaching as a profession? So the first challenge was obviously we talked about studying and accounting. What numbers guy then becomes like a public speaking coach? It makes no sense. And I was really good at math and really terrible at anything else when I was in high school. 
The second challenge, I, I have a physical disability in my left arm. It's crooked. Uh, for those of you listening to the audio, I, I have a crooked left arm because of an accident I had at birth. And the third challenge is, is I'm born and raised in a, in a city called Montreal in Canada. And for those who don't know Montreal, it's a city where you need to know how to speak French, which is a language I didn't know. So I actually went to French school. I'm fluent in three languages today. But when I was in, in school, I had to give presentations in front of other kids my age without knowing how to speak French. So if you had looked at my resume, your immediate thought would be, why is this guy trying to be a communication coach? That makes no sense. And that's really the point that I'm trying to drive is every action that we take in our life ultimately leads to where we want to go. But expertise is not just about having the right degree or the right thing that you want to work on, but rather, are you building the practical experience to get somebody the result? Mm, I love that. So it's really just based on those muscle reps. All right. So you are a master communicator. I can think of some other master communicators like Simon Sinek, Tony Robbins. They all have a legacy they're trying to leave. Do you have a legacy that you're trying to leave? For sure, Catherine. You know, for me, I I believe the next Elon Musk is a seven-year-old girl who can't afford a communication coach. So the reason I started Master Talk, I only found out it was a business, I think like nine months into Master Talk. But the first nine months it was, I was, a, I was a kid in college. I was starting to work at IBM. So I was going to be provided financial. I'm not like Mother Teresa or anything. It's just I, I had money. So I was just like, okay, might as well do something that will serve the community. And I realized no one wasn't really creating communication tips in the way I was thinking about it, which is founded on three main principles, generosity, practicality, and simplicity. Right? How do I share tips that are really generous? How do I make them simple so that anybody could understand them? And how can I, simplicity and practicality, right? How do I make it really practical? Like we hear a lot of advice on speaking, which is too general for my taste. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, you know, picture everyone in their underwear. I was like, what in the world? And <laughs> you know what? I'd hear this advice. I, I just counter with, okay, but what if they're attractive? Then what do you do? Like you're kind of <laughs> finished. Like, like so notice how that makes no sense so so for me i just said there has to be an easier way so i initially started making videos just for the people in my college but then later when i got older i realized that 95 percent of people just can't afford me anymore even i'm not that expensive but it's not like just most people just don't have disposable income so i just said okay what about like the next elon musk because when elon was a kid He grew up in South Africa. He came from like a really abusive home and nobody taught him how to speak. So that's why, that's why I wanted to make master talk a a big success. And I'm still trying to, which Mm -hmm. is how do we live in a world where every change maker, every thought leader grows up to, to wield the tool of communication so they can create vision and impact like Steve Jobs did. Brendan, the thing that frustrates me the most about communication, the way we teach it nowadays is everyone needs it. Everyone needs it, whether you are a CEO, whether you are just doing a presentation at school. Communication is part of every relationship and the world is built upon relationships. And so tell me about that. Yes, you want to make it accessible, but when is the day going to come when it's just something that we learn in schools from the time that we're a young kid? It's tough, Catherine. And the reason is because all of us, and and you might have had other communication professionals on the show, is all of us have different perspectives and opinions on how to teach it. Mm -hmm. So you could have another communication prof on the show or expert, 
and they'll tell a completely different story, right? They'll say the fear of communication comes from something more scientific or fear-based or something in our brain. I don't really like that direction because I don't think the general public would understand it that well. So I take a, a much more simpler approach that somebody who's, who grows up in any country could listen to me and go, I get it. So having said that, I definitely think it'll be a challenge to implement this like across all schools and all curriculums. I think for me, the focus has always been for MasterTalk at the beginning is how do I make sure that the person who really wants to work on communication has an ability to. So one an example in, in my case, and I think the reason why I became successful was purely timing, is I grew up in a world where information was free and accessible. Right, I grew up on so many podcasts when I was younger, right? like a Lewis Howes' podcast, Joe Rogan's podcast, mm-hmm. Tom Billy's podcast. So because all these guys and gals as well are interviewing or being interviewed by these people, I'm able to get all of this knowledge for free outside of the education system. And that's how I was able to kind of build up my expertise and realize that there was a gap in the market and communication. So, so that's probably part one of Master Talk, which is for the people who are really committed, like somebody listening to a podcast is really committed for long form to really get better at speaking. So for those people, that's the first million. And then a percentage of those people will become a client of mine, a very small percentage, maybe like 1%, 0.5% of those people will. And then I use the financial resources that my clients are giving me to keep creating free content for the world. That's why this year I was able to invest in a lot more on Instagram, which I didn't have money for last year. Whereas I can keep expanding the brand in a way that it becomes more accessible. But in terms of the other end of the equation, how do you get this into every school? That is to be determined. I still haven't figured that part out of the mission. I hope I do it before my time's up, but let's see. Yeah. Well, I'm cheering for you. I absolutely would love to see that come to fruition. You know, there's another uh, segment of the industry that stereotypically has a hard time with communication. So that would be engineers. As an engineer myself, there is a stereotype that we're not great communicators and we don't like to talk. Now, I'm not saying that's true. It's just a stereotype. But for those who do have a hard time with communication, what are some basic tips and tricks that you can give to motivate people to invest in becoming good communicators? Absolutely, Catherine. So two parts to that. One, I'll, I'll assume some of your audience are engineers, so I'll speak directly into that. The, the reason engineers don't focus a lot on speaking is, is really simple. It's because their engineering schools don't emphasize it enough. So a lot, of, a lot of being an engineer is all about systematic and thoughtful process, right? So you go, whether you're in software engineering, mechanical engineering, or aerospace engineering, the focus is how do you optimize process? Whereas with communication and public speaking, no one has really taught it from the frame of I can optimize a process. So engineers and their mindset, because a lot of my clients are, are STEM executives, right? They look at communication as a frame that cannot be optimized. They go, well, oh, I guess you're just born with it, which is a really bad assumption to make because I, I worked on speaking a lot. So that's, that's the problem is when engineers start to see communication as a systematic optimizable approach to success, then they're going to optimize it like they do in their school and the deliverables they give to clients. So now the question becomes, how do you do that? So going back to the 18 ball analogy, the way I teach speaking is we always start with the easy threes, which in my opinion are the random word exercise, the question drill, and the video message. If you practice these three things consistently, 
you'll get results. Let's dive in. So number one, we covered, so I'll be quick on this. Random word exercise, pick any word like walnut, jaguar, home, create a random 60-second presentation. And what this does for engineers or anyone in general is it breaks the process. We need to get away from systematic thinking if we want to be really good at speaking. So we need to be really good impromptu, on, off the cusp. And that's what this does. So it's really threatening for people in, in your type of field, right? They're just like, I don't want to do this. And then when they get used to it, they, they, they like it. Number two is the question drill. So we get asked questions all the time at work, at school, on a podcast. But a lot of us are not ready for the questions that life has in store for us. One of those examples early in my career when I was on a show, I remember some guy asked me, hey, Brendan, where does the fear of communication come from? Which is, which is actually the first question you asked me. But back then, my, my answer was, I don't know, man, Florida, Los Angeles, New York City, you tell me. I don't know where this thing comes from. <laughs> so, so how did I fix this? Every single day for five minutes, I answered one question that I thought the world would ask me about my expertise. So day one was, what's your tips for introverts? Day two is, what's your tips for extroverts? Day three is, what's your vision for master talk? But if you do that every day for five minutes, one question, let's say on engineering, on finance, on what your field is, you'll have answered 365 questions about your industry if you do it once a year, uh, once every day for a year, and you'll be bulletproof. And then finally, number three, Video messages. This is what I do for fun. This is my Google Calendar on my right. And I put little reminders of whose birthday it is. That could be a client, a close friend, a partner. And I put a stupid $15 birthday hat on that I bought from Amazon. I open my phone and I just go, guess whose birthday it is today. So just do that with people in your life. That is so fun. I love that. Three really fantastic exercises. Now, the middle one you said, talk about a question or answer the question for five minutes. When we're speaking, five minutes is actually a long time. How do people come up with content to speak for five minutes? Yeah, absolutely. So just to be clear on this, this is the amount of time we're allocating to the exercise. So it could be, I mean, your answer could be actually less time is better. It could be two minutes. It could be three. But you're really taking that extra time to do it well. Let me give a specific example on this, Catherine. Let's say you're an engineer in a meeting and you get asked the common question, what's the update on your project or what's the status on your project? You get asked that every single week probably in your career. Whereas most engineers are not really good at answering that question. They go, uh, yeah, uh, this is what, and they're kind of all over the place. So now with that five minutes, you're going to sit yourself down, let's say on a Saturday morning while you're drinking some coffee or something you really like. You just go, if I were to re-answer this question again, how could I answer it better? And the answer, by the way, that I'll just mention really quick because people wouldn't know is ACE, right? So acknowledge. So start your share with great to see everyone. That's one. Two, C for count. Just tell people how many updates you have. I have three updates to share. So people know when you're going to stop talking. (coughs) And E is evaluate. End your talk by just saying, that's it from my side. Would love to get everyone's feedback. That's it. Whereas most people just go, uh, thanks, I'm done. So it's not, it's not a great start, not a great middle, not a great end. But if you practice that with a different set of questions, you'll get really good at this over time. I want to chime in on one of my favorite exercises, which is removing filler words. So with filler words, um, uh, you know, right, 
those are us giving our brain a moment to think about what we're going to say next. But for the listener, they can be really annoying. So for me, it's fun to pick a topic, just like you were mentioning. Talk about it as long as you can with a partner who is timing you. And the moment that they hear a filler word, they stop the timer. And surprisingly, this is really hard to do. You might get 36 seconds in before you use a filler word because we're so used to them in our natural language. Well said. And and love love the extra. I didn't even know I said that. So I think so I love that. But but yes, you're right, Catherine. You know, the reason we say filler words is to buy ourselves time. So going back into that high school frame, whenever we're in front of that classroom, we're 15 years old in front of let's say 30 students. And we forget what we want to say next. We go, uh, to buy ourselves time, to your Mm -hmm. point. So the trick is really to remove them with pauses. Yeah. Brendan, how important is becoming a master listener for becoming a great communicator? For sure, Catherine. So listening is super important, right? I, think, I forgot who the quote was, but attributed to, but we, you know, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason, right? So that we can listen twice as much as we speak. But the problem, going back to what I was saying earlier about practicality, people say listening is important, Catherine, but they don't really go, okay, what do you actually do to work on this? So, so that was one of the exercises I had to invent for the general public. So it's easy to measure. And I'll teach that right now, which is called the goals call. So the goals call is really simple. Pick somebody you love. It could be a best friend. It could be a significant other. It could be a client. It could be a mentee, just somebody you really like talking to. And you sit down with them for 45 minutes. And this is what you do. The first five minutes of the call goes something like this. Hey, Catherine, I want to hear more about your top three goals for the year and why those goals are important to you. So take five minutes and just write them. Don't do them today, but just as an example. So then you would sit down and you would write out your top three goals. It could be wealth-related, health-related, relationship, doesn't matter. And then after the five minutes are over, then the other person repeats back their three goals and why those goals are important. But here's the catch, Catherine. For the rest of the 40 minutes that are remaining on the call, you are only allowed to do two things. Number one, repeat and acknowledge what that person says. Just to make sure I got your goals, Catherine, you meant X, Y, and Z, right? And that's why it's important to you. So you're allowed to repeat, acknowledge. And the second thing is you're allowed asking clarification questions. So let's say one of one, let's say I'm doing this with you and one of your goals is to make more money. I might ask something like, well, what are you currently making? What does that income look like for you next year? But the caveat is, For the whole duration of the call, you are not allowed to give a single piece of advice. Mm. If you do that with 10 people, it is impossible for you to get worse at listening. You will only get better. I love that. That's a really great exercise. One of the other pieces that people struggle with in becoming a great communicator is listening to the sound of their own voice. So maybe they're recording themselves and they're playing it back. And that can be a hard thing for people to hear their own voice. Do you have any uh, recommendations around getting accustomed to what you sound like? Absolutely, Catherine. That's why that's why the exercises are in the right order, which means you start with the random word exercise, but you don't get points for doing it well. You get points for doing it a lot. So don't force yourself to record anything. Don't even review your own tapes because they start easy. It's like, it's like riding a bike. It's supposed to be fun. 
That's the main idea. But then after you get through 100 random word exercises, which only takes three weeks if you work on it, five minutes a day, really simple. Then you start to feel a little bit more confident. You go, huh. Like I used to think this exercise was impossible. And now this exercise is really easy. Ball two. Question, same thing. You don't have to judge yourself. If you want, you could use a voice recorder to just speak out your answers. Don't even feel free to to listen to yourself. It doesn't even matter. Do that 100 times. Same thing with the video messages. Send the video messages, but the only rule is you're not allowed to retake the video. So just send what you got and do that for 100 people's birthdays or just people in general. And what you're doing here, Catherine, in behind the scenes is you're working the muscle of communication without any judgment attached to the outcome. And then after those three exercises are done, you're just way more confident than where you started. Then we can start having a discussion around, hey, when you're recording yourself, how do you make sure that you get really comfortable? But what often tends to happen, Catherine, is if you go through the gauntlet of the three balls, you know, 100 random word exercises, 100 video messages, 100 questions. By the time you start recording yourself, after like the seventh video of yourself reviewing, you start to get really used to your voice. That makes a lot of sense. You just become acquainted and familiar. And we usually aren't familiar with listening to our voice be played back to us. You mentioned the 18 variables. Is breathwork one of them? Ah, is breathwork one of them? Breathwork is, is, is definitely an important key piece, but for me, it actually isn't in the 18 balls. Mm. And I'll explain why. I'll explain why that is, because that might be a little controversial. <laughs> because the result isn't as fast or measurable for my taste. What does breathwork mean? You know, there's other coaches who might go, for meditation, it's different, right? If, we're, if you're going on a meditative experience, you're, you're going into spirituality. I mean, breathwork is essential. But in the context of speaking, the argument I'll make is it's really difficult because I bring the practical lens to speaking because I'm always coaching clients, right? So I bring the lens of breathwork is somewhat important, but the client doesn't see the difference in their mind. So they might do breathwork, but then they'll go, well, I still feel the same fear. So I guess there's something wrong with me. That's often what I hear. So that's why I don't like to focus too much on breathwork. Instead, I mean, it's, it's get, it'll get really technical if you want me to go through all 18, but it's basically like the three exercises. Then it's the five levels of speech, which is smiling, pausing, vocal tones, pacing, putting it all mm-hmm. together. Then it's things like storytelling and other difficult exercises in body language. That's what I like to focus on because the results are a lot more measurable in terms of impact, but not to say breathwork isn't important for sure. Yeah, it makes sense though. Even though it is important, you don't want to sound breathy. You don't want to get out of breath. I understand why it's not part of your framework. Now, you have done some incredible things by taking this path in your life. What's one of the most fantastic opportunities that you've had because of your current position as a public speaking expert? Yeah, for sure, Catherine. You know, sometimes I really just pinch myself when I look at my life. I mean, I'm 27 years old. My average client is 20 years older than me. It's pretty wild that that they even trust me with their transformation. And I think for me, the most amazing part of the job is being able to coach people who are much smarter than me. You know, the 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 analogy I always like to give is if a piano, because I used to be really afraid of this. And I never, I was like, oh my God, these people are really smart. Why do they want to work with me? 
and and my my coach gave me a great analogy. He said, let's say a billionaire Brandon hired a piano teacher. The piano teacher doesn't care if if the person is a billionaire. What that piano teacher cares about is that that person doesn't know how to play piano. So that's what they focus on in the conversation in the class. And I thought that was such a powerful analogy because I, I've applied that in the context of my work where the people I work with, I mean, unimaginable levels of success. They've done really well for themselves, but, and they're better than me in probably most areas of life, except for that, that one specific skill set that I've spent, I mean, almost a decade working on. So I think, I think the joy of the transformation is always amazing. And obviously when people message me and they say how much they appreciate the YouTube videos, especially people who can't afford me, that's, that's awesome. So that's been a, that's been a, a gift for sure. Yeah, that sounds incredibly rewarding. There's one detail you mentioned that I don't want listeners to miss. You were talking about a story that your coach told you. I think it's important for people to understand that you were coached by someone else, uh, that yes, you practiced quite a bit. You worked really hard on this, but you're also having someone guide you. How did you find the coach to coach you? Yeah, so so the the story behind my coach Catherine was a kind of wild story because the for the first three years I didn't have a coach. I worked, and that's why it took me so long to get really good at speaking because I was kind of just coaching myself. So I was watching all the TED videos and all the things. I still got there, but it took me really long. So so my coach is actually related more to leadership and business in life, mm-hmm. and the story behind that was nine months into Master Talk, I decided to go to Columbus, Ohio to visit a guy named Lewis Howes, who's the host of the School of Greatness mm-hmm. podcast. I've been a fan of his for a long time. So I just wanted to, to meet him and say thanks for everything. So I go to, I go to his event. I go every year, but I, I went to 2019 in particular when I started Master Talk. And I actually met my coach who actually ended up being my business partner later in life. And the first comment he made when he co- started coaching me was he looked at me and he just said, why don't you just charge people? for coaching. And I said, well, what are you talking about? I'm like 22, 23 years old. I'm making free videos. Like this could never work. And uh, boy, was I wrong. I mean, it worked out pretty well. <laughs> but yeah, Vomsi is, has been uh, a gift in my life. He's taught me so much. And, and, and there's so many lessons, but I'd say the most important one is, how, is a question. How can you accomplish your 10-year goals in six months? How can you accomplish your 10-year goals? So you'd ask me, what's my 10-year vision? I was like, oh, I want to quit my job at IP. I want to do this full-time. I want to be on podcasts. I want to be on stages. I want to coach all these amazing people. And I'll quit my job at 28 or 29 or 30. He was like, why don't you do that in six months? And I was like, what? Six months? Crazy? <laughs> so yeah, I'm grateful. And he still coaches me today. But so how did you do it? Did you make it happen in six months? Actually, well, I, it, no, it didn't take six months. It took, uh, it took longer. It, I think from the moment I met him to the moment I quit, it took 16 months, something like that, 16 or 18, which was still way shorter yeah. than the initial timeline. But how we made it work, I mean, that's a whole story for another day maybe, but I can give you the short synopsis unless you want more details, which is I found a, a very specific niche that no one else was touching. You know, what I learned in my career, Catherine, is there's kind of like two different types of people who watch my content. There's the person who is, let's say, a college student or they're in high school or they're getting started. They're watching all my videos because they have a lot of time, not a lot of money. So they're trading their time to watch everything, which is exactly what I want. That's the dream, right? But then there's a second type of person who pays me for coaching who is completely different than the first archetype. So the second archetype 
is the person who might watch two of my videos and just go, oh, this is nice, but like I don't have a lot of time to watch these videos. I just ri- rather hire the guy directly, and he's just going to work with me privately. And that's just a completely different person. It's like a VP at Amazon or something. And that person is just going, well, I got a lot of money, but I don't have a lot of time. So I'd rather just speed up time to get somebody to help me. So that's where the, the, the nuance was between both of those people. And so once you were able to identify that niche, you continued creating free content and then you started charging to meet this other audience. That's correct. And, and specifically, the, the VP, the director, the manager that I was coaching was specifically from the Indian community. So they were Indian people who had tech backgrounds because they were doing well financially. And those people only trust me with the result. So that's why I had very little competition because even I, I'm, I'm born in Canada, so I don't have an Indian accent, but I look, I look like obviously of the same ethnicity as them. So, so they trusted me. I, I coach other demos too. Like I think my DC clients are 50% of my client base and 30% of them are executive women who are freshly minted like VPs. And then they, they're really scared because they're always being compared to men all the time. So they hire somebody like me to make them 10 times better than any other guy in the boardroom. So they smash them and get the next, the, ne- the next promotion. And then the third one is the technology CEO. But it's, it was finding those little pockets of people, Catherine, that, were, that really wanted to pay for coaching that w- allowed me to transition from, from doing this kind of as a hobby to doing this as a business. So what's next for the business and for you? Yeah, for sure, Catherine. I, I think for me, the the key word for when I quit, I quit my job not too long ago. It was two years and a half now as of this recording. So the, the first year of, of being full-time in the business was survival. That was the key word. I was hustling my face off. It, deals, getting on calls with anybody who had an interest in working with me. And and the reason is because I'm, the, I'm still today, it's only started changing in the last maybe two weeks, ever since my sister graduated. But I'm the only breadwinner in my family. I retired my mom two years ago. So I was I was really stressed out of my mind. I was like, shit, I better make this work. So I was kind of running around the place. And then the year after that was doing a little bit better than survival, which was last year. And this year, thankfully, I'm doing a lot better now because of my reputation in the market. So now the focus is scale. How do I take all the resources that I'm getting now from clients, from media, from impressions, and not that my social media accounts are starting to climb a lot faster now. And how do I use that brand to really 10x my growth? And then when I get to that level, I'll really be able to to meaningfully play on the world stage and and create a lot of impact in the world. Scale is challenging, but it's also so important. If there's anyone listening who's trying to scale their own business, what's one thing that you would ask them to focus on? If I only had one piece of advice for somebody to scale a business, the only advice that I think really matters for anyone who's doing, let's say, less than 100K a year, 100 to 200K mark, is put your product in front of everybody. I know that sounds really counterintuitive because a lot of people say niche down and all that stuff. I hate that piece of advice. I'll tell you why. The reason I hate it is because as an operator of a business, you can't possibly know who your ideal client is until you've worked with everybody. Like the reason I'm able to articulate, okay, the tech CEO, the Indian guy or gal and the women executive is because I tried 10 other niches that didn't work. 
Like, I wanted to work with students. They were broke. I wanted to work with startup CEOs in their 20s. They were broke, even if they needed the coaching. So it wasn't working. So, so the funnel was broken. So I, I was, so I was pouring money from my IBM salary to, to pay for the videos, but I wasn't able to make the money back. So it was only after I split tested like 13 different demographics that I realized, okay, these are the three types of people for now that are actually willing to pay me money. And if I just focus on those three types of people, I can create a business that sets me free and allows me to create free resources for with the extra time that I have. But if you're getting started in business, you have to try your product in front of everybody. Have long dinner conversations with people who are buying your thing, whether it's a product or a service, and really get to know them at a deep emotional level. Like for me, the definition of a pro entrepreneur is somebody who understands their ideal audience, their ideal client, more than the person understands themselves. So if you're able to get to a place where you understand the woman executive, you understand the brown technology professional, you understand the tech CEO more than sometimes they even understand themselves, then you could really build a, a super successful business. If someone wants to work with you or watch your content, where should they go? For sure, Catherine. By the way, this is such a great intro. I had so much fun. Thanks for having me. So, so two ways to keep in touch. The first one is the YouTube channel. Just type master talk in one word. You'll have access to hundreds of free videos on how to speak. And the second way to keep in touch is I do a free communication workshop over Zoom every two weeks. It's a 90-minute call. I facilitate it. It's super fun. Everyone's invited. You don't have to be a VP to join this call. You could be a seven-year-old. It doesn't matter. Everyone's been on this call. So if you want to jump on it, go to Rockstar communicator.com. Brendan, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the show. You're incredible and your ability to answer questions is phenomenal. I can see that the exercises really do work. So I hope that everyone gives them a try and checks out your content. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you. Um, I was curious, you talk about your disability and I'm an engineer who's also an accessibility advocate. So I do a lot of work with digital tech, just making sure that it's accessible. Do you coach uh, disability leaders with communications? Is that something, an audience that you've come across yet? I've not as big because even if I technically have a disability, you know, the only reason I talk about it, Catherine, Mm -hmm. it's not because I mean, I had a little insecurity about it, but it's it's, I don't really consider it a disability because yeah. it's only like a little bit crooked. So it's mm-hmm. like I could still do everything. It's not mm-hmm. like a, like I have limited mobility or anything. I just did it because it, it feel it's it makes people more relatable to me. Yeah. But I think out of the hundred and I don't know, maybe 120 people I've coached, I think maybe uh, three have had disabilities. Like one was autistic. One had autism, I mean, like a spectrum of autism, but definitely not a specialist in that okay. area by any means. Yeah. Well, the reason why I ask is that industry, I'll call it an industry, is growing. And even on LinkedIn, there's that section for top voices for people with disabilities who are top voices, they're top communicators, publishing newsletters, doing all those kinds of things in that specialty. And I could imagine that is it's a new field. It's not a place where the world has really recognized them as speakers and have seen them as valuable, unfortunately. Luckily, that is changing, but I would imagine that there is a gap that maybe someone like yourself could fill just in terms of helping people communicate. 
Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'll definitely look into it. Send me the, if you have a link for that yeah. on LinkedIn, I'll, I'll definitely check it out. I'm always open to new ideas. So I can do that. that. I can do that. Hey, Brendan, thank you so much for joining. It was such a pleasure to meet you. Likewise, Catherine. All the best with everything that you're doing. If you need anything, I'm always a text to her.